Good morning again. As we uh, said earlier, we are starting a new sermon series this morning, as you probably saw in the email. And what we want to do with this series of sermons is to look at some of the most important doctrines of the Christian church and see how they are fulfilled in the person and work of Christ, as we heard from Ephesians earlier and as Jeff prayed. Doctrine matters, brothers and sisters. The way that you think about God and His work of redemption has practical implications for how you believe and for how you live. And that's why we want to focus on these 10 Christian truths with these sermons. And this morning we start with the doctrine of election from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. This is what the Apostle Paul says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the church today. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this, He called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Please pray with me. Father, we are thankful for your word that reveals to us the unsearchable riches of grace in Jesus Christ. Father, we are thankful this morning that everything that you have given us in your word is for our own profit, for our good, for our comfort, for the health of the church. And Father, as we look into this precious truth that the Apostle Paul teaches in this passage this morning, we pray, Father, that you will build your church through your word as we look to Christ and walk by faith in him, awaiting, Father, awaiting the day that we will finally obtain his own glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the doctrine of election, as you probably know, the, the, the word, even the word election is controversial and has been controversial throughout the history of the church. The idea that God chooses who will be saved is horrifying to some, to some people. Election strikes people as arbitrary bigotry. And the impulse of many well-meaning Christians is to try to defend God from such misrepresentation. They have come to the conclusion that if the Scriptures do indeed teach that God chooses who will be saved, then God is unjust and unloving. It will be unjust for God to decide who will inherit eternal life before they are even born. And it will be unloving for Him to condemn people to eternal judgment without giving them the chance to be saved. Their logic, then, based on these assumptions, goes like this. God is 
just, and loving. And therefore, the Scriptures do not and cannot teach God's predetermined election. Those who have these assumptions believe that the character of God is put in, in, in jeopardy by this teaching. But the, the main problem with this thinking, brothers and sisters, is that the Scriptures very clearly do teach on God's election. Our text this morning is a point in case. Look there in, in the second part of verse 13. God chose you as the firstfruits for what? To be saved. Or think about Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, which again, Jeff read this morning. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He predestined us for adoption to Himself, which is another way of saying He predestined us to salvation. And these are only two of the many passages in the Scriptures that say that God chooses people unto salvation. So the Bible clearly teaches something about election. That's not, that's not something to be disputed. The question is, what does the Bible teach about it? How does the Bible's teaching on election affirm and advance the justice and love of God? And at the end of the day, what, what difference does it make if we understand this doctrine rightly or not? So this morning we will look at three truths about the doctrine of election and how God's salvation of His people is explained in this doctrine. Three truths. First, in the first part of verse 13, the doctrine of election teaches us that we are loved by God. Second, in the second part of verse 13, the doctrine of election teaches us that we are saved by God. And third, in verse 14, it teaches us that we are kept by God. Loved, saved, and kept by God. So we begin in the first part of verse 13 where we see that the doctrine of election teaches us that we are loved by God. Notice there that the main action driving the first part of verse 13 is that word, ought. It's actually a, a, a verb. We ought, Paul says, to always give thanks. Other translations have something like this. We can help but give thanks to God. Or, I think better yet, we are bound to give thanks. In other words, Paul, and by extension, we are bound, we are obligated to give thanks to God, to give Him praise. Why? Because of God's initiative and prerogative in the work of salvation. Notice the connection between Paul's action and God's actions in the rest of the passage. On the one hand, Paul is bound to give thanks. And on the other hand, God chooses and calls. So in other words, because God chooses and calls, Paul is therefore bound to give thanks to Him. You see, friends, our, our thanksgiving to God is the coming back full circle 
of His salvation. God's choosing is the foundation of salvation, and His calling is the working out of this salvation, and it all ends in the praise of God. So the salvation is of God, from God, and to God. That's why we are bound to give thanks to Him. It is the circling back of His work of salvation to His own praise and glory. Notice also that Paul's giving of thanks is not partial, but absolute. He says we ought to always give thanks to God. In other words, in God's economy of salvation, there is no room for human boasting. If the work is thoroughly and completely God's, then there's not an inch of space for you or I to get any credit for it, friends. We ought to always give thanks to God because salvation is always, in every case and at all times, from God. As the Old Testament refrain says, and we actually heard it in the call to worship in Revelation as well, the, refrains, the biblical refrain goes like this, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So we do not boast on our own effort. We do not thank ourselves for what we have accomplished. Now, brothers and sisters, we give thanks to God. Our boast is in Him alone as we acknowledge His sovereign grace in our lives. A grace which we did not deserve, by the way, and could have never earned by our own merit. So the, the doctrine of election says this. It says it, it is all of God's grace. It is all grace from beginning to end. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And this electing grace, this before the foundation of the world, massive at all times grace, leads to the praise of God. To the praise of God. And it should also lead us, friends, it should also lead us to humility, to praise and to humility. To be chosen and to be prideful is an incongruity. Pride is a subversion of the gospel because pride is the opposite of the humility that treasures undeserved sovereign grace, which means that having your head stuffed with theological knowledge and having your doctrine of election box checked is of no profit to you, my friend, if it doesn't lead you to treasure God's grace in humble worship. Does that make sense? Robust theological knowledge, according to the Scriptures, should lead you to humble praise and worship and treasuring of Christ. Not to pride. Paul goes on to say that he gives thanks for these Christians because they are those who are beloved by the Lord. Beloved by the Lord. And the way that that word beloved works, it carries the idea of being the object of God's love. 
In other words, Christians do not earn God's love, but are simply loved by the Lord. They are the subject of His love. And they are not merely loved in the past or merely loved in the present. They are both at the same time continuously. To be loved by God is an ongoing state in which you have been, you are now, and will continue to be. So that the very identity of God's people is that they are beloved by the Lord. To be sure, friends, we are a confessional people so that we, are, we identify with the truth of Scripture's but part of our identity is also subjective in the sense that we are the recipients of God's love. We are the beloved of the Lord. The Lord, again, is the covenant name of God. And it makes sense for Paul, I think, to use this name here in the context of God's love for His people because God's love is always expressed in the context of His covenant relationship with them. So to be beloved of the Lord is to be in covenant with Him. And the thing that holds the covenant together is the steadfast love of God. And I believe it is this phrase, brothers and sisters, beloved by the Lord, that takes us to the heart of the doctrine of election in this passage. You see, we, we usually think about election outside of the categories of covenant. We tend to think about election in almost a mystical or magical way. We have no tangible ideas to think about election. And part of the reason is because election in some ways deals with the hidden eternal counsel of God. But friends, let's be encouraged this morning that the Scriptures are not given to the church so that we will search out the things that God has not revealed to us. Rather, the biblical authors are always, they are always pointing us to the objective reality of the revealed purposes of God. So you may be wondering this morning, do I even care to open the Scriptures and see what they teach about election? Well, you should be because it is a truth revealed to the church for our own good. So when Paul, for example, writes about God's election here, he has in mind God's salvation revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To be chosen by God is to be loved by Him covenantally in Christ. We have been chosen in Christ, Paul says in Ephesians. In love, God predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And God has blessed us in the Beloved in whom we have redemption. You see, you cannot understand the doctrine of election apart from the glorious reality that God's new covenant people have been united to Christ through faith. In other words, election is a Christ-centered doctrine. It is in and through Christ that we partake of God's new 
covenant blessings. To be elected by God means to be chosen in His Son. In the Beloved, we are loved before the foundation of the world. And so instead of making God an unloving, intolerant stickler, the doctrine of election is the floodgate that unleashes God's undeserved love for us, brothers and sisters. If the doctrine of election teaches you anything, it teaches you that in Christ, in Christ, you are more loved than you could have ever dreamed or you could have ever imagined. Because of God's sovereign grace, the unlovable has become the beloved of the Lord. And that is good news. Election is the security of God's love for those who are united to Jesus Christ. And perhaps this morning, you need to hear this word. If you are in Christ, trusting in Him by faith, God loves you, brother. And God loves you, sister. God loves His people, brothers and sisters, and that's good news. He loves you in Christ. If you are united to Jesus, God loves you. Whatever you think makes you unlovable, whatever you think puts you outside the range of God's love, the Scriptures say that in Christ, God's covenant love for you reaches all the way back before the world was even made and will continue forever unto eternity. And so as long as God's purposes of election in Christ stand, so will His covenant love for His people also stand. To be chosen by God, according to Paul, is to be loved by Him in Christ. That is the first truth that we learn from the doctrine of election in this passage, at least this morning. We are loved by God. And secondly, in the second part of verse 13, election teaches us that we are saved by God. Loved by God and now saved by God. As we have seen, our salvation is established on God's covenant love for His people. And now we see that God's covenant love is displayed and confirmed in their salvation. God's covenant love is expressed in choosing for Himself a people whom He will save for His own glory. Notice the second part of verse 13. Why, why does Paul give thanks to God for the brothers and sisters in Thessalonica? Because, he says, God chose them to be saved. In other words, they are the proof that God's hidden purposes are being worked out in and through Christ right now. Right now. Paul describes them as the first fruits of God's harvest. And as many of you, know, uh, as many of you know, the idea of first fruits comes from the Old Testament. Like in passages, Exodus 23 is one of many. Where God commands His people to set apart the first batch of their harvest as a holy offering to Him. So the, the two ideas here are that of being first among many, and more importantly, 
that of being set apart for God. And in this case, set apart by God Himself. Paul uses this metaphor in other places, like Romans and 1 Corinthians, to describe the first believers in a given place. In other words, these first converts are the first of many. They are a kind of down payment in the world as God's sovereign purposes in Christ are being unfolded in His active setting apart of His people from the world for His own glory. And so you see, brothers and sisters, salvation is much more, much more than checking a box on a card or walking down the aisle or repeating a prayer. Salvation is not something you do, in other words, but something that God Himself accomplishes for you and in you by His own power through the work of the Spirit. You have been chosen as the first fruits to be saved, Paul says, through or in the sanctification of the Spirit and in belief of the truth. Spirit and truth. That's how Paul describes salvation in this passage. And that's how God's election or choosing of His people is worked out, friends. In other words, election is not random. God doesn't flip a coin in the air and it's like, okay, you, you're going to heaven, you're going to hell, flips the coin again, keeps going. But that's not the way God's purposes in Christ work. God's election is actually His purposeful, active, personal, powerful, and merciful inclination and commitment to save sinners. And He does this through the objective work of the Spirit as He sanctifies and sets a, a people apart unto salvation. Friends, the, the Scriptures are very, very clear that apart from God's active and merciful pursuit of sinners, we will all be condemned to eternal wrath because of our rebellion against Him. In other words, left to ourselves, we will have never chosen God. The Scriptures are clear and honest. We love sin and we love darkness. We are haters of God by nature. Think about it, friends. Can, can you sanctify yourself? My wife will tell you, I can sanctify myself. Can those who are spiritually dead and enslaved to sin choose to love and obey the truth about God? No, friends, absolutely not. The idea that dead people can make themselves alive is foreign to the Scriptures. If Lazarus couldn't come out of the tomb by his own power, neither can you and neither can I. So if sinners will never choose God for themselves, then how will salvation ever be possible unless God chooses to save us? You see, election doesn't teach that God gives the opportunity for salvation to some and not to others. Rather, it teaches that in His supreme mercy, the Lord saves the very people who have rejected Him. He saves the unsavable. And that includes you and me, brothers and sisters. So election is not arbitrary. 
It is not unclear. It is a certain reality. It is the definite work of God through the operation of the Holy Spirit. For God to choose someone is to sanctify him or her through the Spirit. To set him or her apart for God through conversion upon faith in the truth. Upon faith in the truth. Notice again how Paul ties both Spirit and truth together in the second part of verse 13. Sanctification and belief in the truth. You see, you will, you will always, in the Scriptures, you will always find the Spirit working through the agency of truth. Unfortunately, all throughout the history of the church, we have had the tendency to separate the two and to emphasize one over the other. But in order to be faithful to the Scriptures, you must have both together, Spirit and truth. So if you want to be a Spirit-filled, Spirit-empowered, and Spirit-led church, you must be a truth-believing, truth-dependent, and truth-proclaiming church. It is through a Spirit-truth ministry that God accomplishes His purposes of election in the world. Which means for us, brothers and sisters, that if Midtown Baptist Church wants to be at the center of God's saving activity in redeeming sinners, we must carry on a ministry of Spirit-dependent gospel proclamation. For it is through the gospel, applied by the Spirit, that God saves His chosen people, setting them apart from the world as firstfruits that testify to God's ongoing purposes of redemption in Jesus Christ. And this idea, brothers and sisters, takes us to our third truth about the doctrine of election. Election teaches us that we are loved by God, we are saved by God, and finally we are kept by God. In verse 14, Paul transitions to the second of God's actions in the passage. First, in verse 13, God chooses, and now in verse 14, God calls. He chooses and calls. Look there in verse 14. To this, that is to be saved in verse 13, to this God called you through our gospel, Paul says. And the scriptures oftentimes speak of God's calling his people. This is especially true in the book of Isaiah. For example, Isaiah 48, 12, the Lord says to his people, Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. Listen to me, O Jacob, whom I called. Jeff referred to Isaiah as well during his prayer. And that's how the Lord sets his righteous kingdom through his righteous king. It is by calling his people through this king. Notice here in 2 Thessalonians how the Lord calls His people. It is through our gospel, Paul says. It is through the apostolic message concerning Jesus Christ. This means, brothers and sisters, that God 
uses means to accomplish his sovereign will. What I, what I mean by means is that it is through the gospel that God calls sinners to salvation. So gospel ministry in the church is not an option, but our Christ-given task. God's calling is powerful, effective, and authoritative, and it cannot be with ten, but the means through which His effectual calling is carried out can either be rejected or believed. So you have the sovereign, powerful calling of God that cannot be withstand, and He calls His people through means, the gospel, and the means can either be rejected or believed. I hope that's clear. So it is not merely by hearing the message of the gospel that God calls His people, but through faith in the message of the gospel, or more precisely, through faith in the person and work of Christ, which the gospel reveals. The gospel which Paul and the other apostles proclaimed, which has been passed down to the church today, is the gospel concerning the Lord Jesus. It is the good news that the eternal Son of God humbled Himself, being born of a woman in human flesh and bone, that He lived a perfect life of obedience to the will of God His Father, that He never committed sin, that He died on a cross, giving His life as payment for sin and taking the wrath of God upon Himself, that He was evidently dead and buried, and that He took His life back up again and resurrected on the third day. Day, victorious over sin and death. That He ascended to the right hand of the Father from where He reigns forevermore and from where He has promised to come back again to judge the living and the dead. It is the apostolic message concerning the Lord Jesus Christ that God uses as the means through which He calls sinners to Himself. Now, to those who reject the apostolic message in their unbelief, they show themselves to be enemies of God. But to those who receive the gospel by faith, Christ has become wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians. So the gospel of Jesus Christ is the means God uses to call His people effectually, powerfully, and savingly through repentance and faith, as the Spirit of God applies the work of Christ's redemption to us. And this means, brothers and sisters, in a very practical way, that rather than quenching the need for evangelism and missions, the doctrine of election encourages the church in the use of means to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, because it is through the gospel that God accomplishes His purposes of election in Christ, as He calls sinners to Himself. Evangelism and missions exist because God's eternal purposes of election exist. Election, in other words, is the guarantee that God will use the means of proclamation we employ. And so we preach the gospel on Sunday mornings, we proclaim the gospel when we go to our workplaces. We tell the gospel to our children at the dinner table because it is through the gospel that we trust and hope that the Lord will 
save his own. So the doctrine of election teaches us that God chooses us in Christ and that he also calls us through Christ. So at its core, election is a Christ-centered reality. God's election of his people is not direct, but mediated through Christ, who is himself the chosen one of God. Isaiah 42, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul Delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Who is Isaiah speaking of? Matthew says says he's speaking of Jesus. He applies that passage to the life and ministry of Christ. So it is only in Christ and through Christ that the church is rightly called the elect people of God. We are God's elect only in connection to Christ, who is himself the chosen one. So, can you know that you are chosen by God? And I don't mean this to be a trick question, but don't answer. Can you be chosen? Can you know that you're chosen by God? And I think according to the Scriptures, friend, the answer is yes. Yes, you can. Remember, the doctrine of election in any other Christian truth has been given to the church to be known for our own comfort in our own health as a church. So yes, you can know that you are chosen by God, but not by peeking behind the curtains into the hidden purposes of God. But by walking by faith in the Lord Jesus, in whom God has already graciously revealed everything you need for life, for godliness, and for assurance. You see, Christ himself, brothers and sisters, is the hidden mystery of God now fully revealed to his people in the gospel. That's what Paul says in Ephesians when he's, uh, he's talking about his, the stewardship that he has received. To make the word of God fully known, the mystery here, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, friends, what, what's hidden in the eternal counsel of the mind of God and what was concealed in the Old Testament has now been fully revealed to the church, Paul says in Ephesians. Fully revealed to us in Christ. So what is the mystery of God that was hidden for ages? It is not a list of names of those who have been chosen so you can sort of Google the list and see if your name is there or not. The mystery is Christ. And not only that, but Christ in you and you in Christ. The mystery now revealed is that God has chosen a people for Himself and has called them by His sovereign grace through faith to be united to His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that the life that you now live, brother and sister, you live by faith in the Son of God. And finally, notice that God's calling is not provisional, but certain and permanent. In other words, God doesn't initiate the calling and then leaves His people to figure out the rest on their own. 
God's calling is ongoing and active until, Paul says, the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. God promises to sustain, to preserve, and to keep those who are His until they obtain eternal glory with Christ. And it is all through the Gospel, all through the Gospel. The same Gospel that saves you is the Gospel that preserves you until the obtaining of glory. You see, the Gospel is not something you believe at the beginning of your Christian life and then you shelf away. The Gospel is the means by which God is keeping you right now. He's keeping you right now, brother and sister, and He's doing it through the Gospel. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus as you hold fast to the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. From election to glorification and everything in between, Salvation belongs to God. He saves and keeps His people through faith in Him. So there are two key ideas about the nature of God's election that we learn from this passage. Election is both a covenantal and a Trinitarian reality. Election is covenantal, meaning that it is not ambiguous. Election is God's covenantal choosing and loving of His own from before the foundation of the world. It is a gospel reality that is applied to God's people only and in through Jesus Christ as the covenant head of the new covenant community. An election is Trinitarian, meaning that all three persons of the Godhead are involved in the work of choosing, of calling, and of keeping God's people. God the Father initiates the covenant relationship by choosing His people, The Spirit sanctifies and sets God's covenant people apart. And the Son accomplishes their salvation through His obedient life and substitutionary death. So brothers and sisters, the doctrine of election does not diminish the justice and love of God. Rather, this doctrine teaches us that in His justice, God has dealt with the problem of sin by calling Himself a people who are saved by grace through faith in union with Christ as His work is applied to us by the Spirit. God's electing purposes in Christ have been accomplished in the life and death of Christ and applied to us by His Spirit through repentance of sin and trust in the Gospel. So if you are in Christ this morning, if you are in Christ this morning, you are loved by God, You are saved by God, and you are being kept by God through faith in Christ. So may the salvation of the Lord resound to His glory in the life and worship of His people forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I come to the end of this sermon, and I have a very heavy sense that I did not do justice to what the Scriptures teach about Your eternal, electing, saving grace. But I prayed, Father, that You will help me and help Your people, even this week, to remember that we are loved by God, beyond imagination, God. That You have called us in Christ to be saved. And that You will keep us, Father, as we trust in Him. Father, please use this church 
for your own glory and for your own purposes in the world as you save sinners through the redemption accomplished in Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.